0: This is Prayer Amid Pandemic, a podcast to encourage and sharpen the church through telling stories of Christians whose faith was shaped by sickness and by praying with fellow believers around the world. I'm Morgan Lee. The most famous siblings of the early church are likely two brothers, Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa, and their sister, Macrina. She was deeply precious to them for her love, her insight, and her wisdom. They even called her teacher, wrote David Hutchings for Christianity Today last year. Macrina ultimately died after a long battle with an unknown illness. Her life and suffering inspired several works by Gregory of Nyssa, including The Life of Macrina and On the Soul and the Resurrection.
1: So we know of Macrina mostly in reference to uh, her two famous brothers, but
0: There are other actually famous brothers in her family as well. Amy Brown-Hughes is assistant professor of theology at Gordon College. She, along with Lynn Kohick, is the author of Christian Women in the Patristic World, Their Influence, Authority, and Legacy in the Second Through Fifth Centuries, published in 2017 by Baker Academic.
1: We know about their family from a variety of letters and uh, treatises, from an abundance of writings by Basil. Of Caesarea. Uh, well, you mentioned Basil the Great, Basil of Caesarea, and Gregory of Nyssa. Um, and also the exchange of letters with uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, which is like Basil's college buddy, um, also known as Gregory the theologian. Uh, and between the, I would say the four of them, but definitely the three men, we've got pretty much the architecture of Nicene Orthodoxy in the late fourth century. So, yeah, I guess you could say they're kind of big deals. Macrina was actually the oldest. Of 10 children. She was born around 327 or so. She lived until um, about 380, 383, somewhere in there. And then we know about her because Gregory of Nyssa wrote a couple of works about her um, after her death. So, the Life of Macrina first, and then her deathbed scene that that work culminates in, he expands into this magnificent work on the soul and the resurrection. They, uh, she was born to wealthy parents in Cappadocia, which is modern-day Turkey, and um, like central Turkey specifically, and their father Basil, so son, namesake, was uh, a famous rhetorician. And Christianity was really central to their family. So Macrina's paternal grandparents were both confessors. So they had suffered or been tortured, but were not martyred. And then her maternal grandfather was martyred. And then Macrina was named after her grandmother, whose legacy was passed down to her granddaughter and who did the really important work of preserving the traditions of the church brought to her by Gregory Thaumaturgus, or Gregory the Wonder Worker. Who was a third-century bishop and a student of the famous theologian Origen of Alexandria. So that's how you get this sort of theological um, genealogy between Origen and the Cappadocian. So when Macrina's father died, her mother Amelia moved the family to their estate in Pontus, and she takes over. And Macrina takes over a significant amount of responsibility for her family, running the household, helping her mother grieve, teaching her younger brothers. And Gregory says that she became their father, mother, teacher, advisor, and guardian uh, out of other things as well. And out of the 10 children, we know five names. So Basil was the second oldest, and Gregory, then Peter, who also becomes a bishop later, and now Cratius, who began by following in his father's footsteps with pursuing rhetorical training, but then he decides no, nah, I think I'm going to go out in the wilderness and hang out and pray and, you know, have a vow of poverty. So he goes and, goes and does that. And um, unfortunately, he dies in a tragic, uh, tragic hunting accident. Um, they kind of where they were. They had these flash floods. And um, he was a very experienced outdoorsman, but can't really do much when a wall of mud comes flying at you. So he died um, before his time. So as far as late ancient families go, we actually know quite a bit about them. Um, There's a lot of people we don't know much about. Um, But this family I, I find kind of wonderful because we get some windows into not only who they were, but also their relationships with each other.
0: That's really remarkable. I almost feel like if they had surnames during this time, we would kind of know them all a little bit more.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, they're often called, you know, the, the Cappadocians, right? Well, Basil, um, his brother Gregory, and then, you know, Gregory of Nazianzus, who, I mean, they didn't live too far away from each other, um, but uh, there's several of us scholars who are very big fans of Macarena, and we call her the fourth Cappadocian, so there's uh, <laughs> a, a bit of a surname there, I suppose.
0: Since this is a podcast about sickness, illness, disease, and so forth. What do we know about these siblings' relationship with this type of stuff? I
1: think a good bit of material comes from Gregory's reflection on his sister's death. So Gregory finds out on his journey home to Pontus when he's going to go visit that his sister is gravely ill. He begins processing her death before he even gets there and thinking about her legacy, and he ends up having a vision Of him holding these lovely, like uh, glowing remains of her body and thinking, you know, thinking about her legacy and what that's going to mean for him. So he recounts being by her bedside. And he observes how the women around her loved her. He listens to her and treasures her in those last moments and processes how Macarena faced her illness and her death. And a couple of things that he mentions is he, so we get it through his observations in life of Macarena, where he, uh, where she is not giving the illness more credence than it's due, I guess is maybe a way of putting it. And then it, it culminates in this lengthy deathbed scene that, as I mentioned, is expanded on it on the soul and the resurrection. And Gregory writes Macrina in this kind of, in the place of Socrates, his teacher, reflecting on the body and death. And it's a delicate balance, I think, in late ancient works, having this idea of having a good death was really important. So there's a whole lot going on here and how Gregory writes about how, Macarena faced her illness with strength and courage, and she wasn't in hysterics and all this sort of thing. And this was really important. So there's a lot of language about resisting overwrought displays of emotion. And I think sometimes when maybe modern readers uh, look at some of these texts, it can feel a little bit removed. Um, Some of that was just sort of the structure of, of rhetoric at the time and sort of facing your impending Death and reality with sort of a sober mindset, sort of the face of realism, like not sort of saying in a way it is what it is. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but at the same time, I'm not going to say that this is um, all that I am. But it's also an important end to who I am. So I want to I want to die well. I want to suffer well. So this doesn't stop. What's interesting though is after I just said all of that, this doesn't stop Gregory and Macrina's companions from calling out how she was the light that guided our souls, the bond of our harmony and the cure of the infirm. So Magrina had taken in many women who live alongside her in the aesthetic life that she took care of. And uh, we find Gregory after she dies, Gregory gets very distraught and there's just a lot of warmth and love in that place. And he accepts this responsibility to dress her body for burial. And in the lamplight, he notes a scar that is like uh, just above her breast um, that marked an earlier illness that he didn't know about. And the nun, Bethiana, uh who uh, had been with Macarena for years, tells him that it was all that was left of a malignant tumor, which is probably breast cancer, that had miraculously wow. been healed. She tells him that Macarena chose to endure the spread of cancer, even though her mother wanted her to see a doctor. And so she refused to get the sore looked at because she didn't want her body exposed before the eyes of others. And now we immediately might think like we might associate that with maybe the idea that now like, oh, doctors, we don't trust them or like, you know, (laughs) all these other things that maybe (laughs) some fringe people might believe. But in context, you want to think about like, what was it like to be a woman to see a doctor (laughs) at this time? Right, like the sense of exposure. The, like, we read from a lot of these medical texts, like they didn't know what the heck was going on with a woman's body. So I can maybe forgive Macarena <laughs> not necessarily wanting to subject herself to that, but uh, she enters the church and falls before the altar, weeping. And this mixture of tears and dirt that is on the floor before the altar, she it becomes a mud, and then she takes it and applies it to the sore on her body. And then when her mother asks again, please, please go to the physician, she doesn't say no. Instead, she just directs her mother to reach into the folds of her garment and make the sign of a cross and finds only a scar and no longer a sore. And so the scar remains there as a sign of God's presence and healing. So there's a whole lot going on there, like the referencing there of, of... Jesus putting the mud on the eyes of the blind man, for instance, like there's a parallel there. The scar that's left behind, imitation of you know, imitation of Christ and suffering and sickness, by his tribes who are healed and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I think there's some really there's a whole lot of reflection here about um, how the body is is important. I, I think yeah. that some of the assumptions we have looking at some of these early writers. And especially those who were ascetics, who, you know, live lives of renunciation, that that meant that they sat around hating their bodies all day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You want to dispel that? Is that what you're trying to say? Yes, I want to dispel that. I I think that there's a a little bit of that. And we see that in some, um, in a couple of writers later, and there's some reasons uh, why they kind of lean in that direction. I'm thinking specifically of Jerome, that he's his own little ball of wax that we'll leave over to the side. <laughs> um, but just, like with a lot of these aesthetics, what we find is um, what we see here with Macrina is in when, she, when Gregory's listening to her talk about on the soul and the resurrection, she says that there's basically, there's no such thing as a homeless soul. Our bodies are ours for eternity. And, Taking care of them and understanding them and caring for them and recognizing that the body that we have now is continuous with the body that we're going to have in eternity brings some context to how we treat it now. Um, and recognize that, that some of our experiences are temporal and other experiences, like who we are, like our, like freedom is not just our soul floating away somewhere and escapism. Instead, it's recognizing that this body will be healed, that God cares about this body. And so we should also care about this body and recognize that it comes along for the ride in our devotion as Christians. Um, And that means that we're living with bodies that get sick, that feel like they betray us, that suffer, um, that experience pain. Um, But that is is—it's all sort of contextualized in this larger story. Of, of the resurrection being the future reality.
0: Amy, I, I'm curious right now if, if you think that there's something that the church today could learn from this particular family, um, particularly in this moment of pandemic that we're in.
1: Yeah, so I mentioned I was going to say something about, um, about Basil, and I think this is a good place to say this. Um, I think recognizing kind of what I just said, that our bodies are fundamental to who we are, bodies that get sick, the bodies that betray us, the bodies of others that also get sick. Um, but they, these bodies are um, important to who we are, and will be with us even in the resurrection. And I think caring for one's body and the bodies of others is caring for the whole person. Um, and so, any way we can do that, and and what's, well, let me tell you about Basil, and I think it'll bring some context here. He was especially attuned to what it looked like to care for the whole person in context. If he's famous because um, of kind of ha- establishing one of the first examples of hospitals. So uh, he was especially attuned to those who were hated in society. Those that were like the abject the marginalized of the marginalized who were suffering. And he set up, what Gregory of Nazianzus in his funeral oration honors him by calling them basileas, um, which are these, like his versions of hospitals, like homes for the dying. He actually might think a little bit like along the lines of Mother Teresa and sort of gathering up and in sort of a sense of hospice in some ways. Um, he served those kind of people, the sickest people, but he didn't do this blindly. He believed that medicine was a gift from God. And there's nothing new under the sun. So of course, distrust in science was something that Basil himself had to contend with, with other Christians, because they, um, they had sort of a distrust of Greek medicine, because there was some of it that was connected directly to like Greek gods and that kind of thing. And so he wrote against that. He's like, No, you know, medicine is a gift from God. And the, that God's work of healing the body and taking care of people would involve medicine, would involve taking care of of people. And in Basil Gregory and in Gregory's depiction of his sister Macrina, we see count, a counter to the assumptions that we have that our bodies aren't important to who we are. Um, they didn't sit around hating their bodies, like I said. Um, in fact, um, Basil quipped in response to this idea that the pinnacle of Christian devotion is to like isolate yourself and be a hermit. Um, and being the Christian ideal, he said, "Whose feet will you wash?" <laughs> wow,
0: was Quite the quip. And the wow. suffering and the sick need presence and need care for their bodies. I'm just curious about legacy. We hinted about their larger theological legacy at the beginning, and that obviously <laughs> is enormous for those of us who identify as Christians today. Would you say there was a legacy with regards to some of their teachings on the body? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, Basil on, as I mentioned, those Basileas, they're they are famous,
1: Um for uh, and this was all connected in, in, including in their uh, discussions on Trinitarian theology on understanding who Christ was, being fully God and fully human as um, the language uh, will later reflect. So thinking about a God who is present among us like and that Christianity looking like because he was a bishop, you know he could have you know sat in his office or whatever and he did all the political stuff too Basil was a political animal he was out there like, you know, you're like, what is Nyssa, right? Well, Gregory didn't really know either. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you are now bishop over this place, so I have enough votes to get what I want done. You know? Gregory's <laughs> like, okay. So of course he was doing stuff like that, but he's also out there doing the work in, in the community. And um, I, Gregory of Nyssa, um, I've mentioned him in regard to Macrina specifically, but he's got a lot of other works where he's, he's a major figure in theological anthropology, thinking about what it means to have a body and be an embodied human. And his work is, is really very central to conversations about theological anthropology now, um, in many different regards. Um, so, uh, he's, he's actually one of those theologians that people are, are kind of coming back around to and looking at and thinking, wow, he's got some important stuff to say here. So, um, The legacy is actually quite alive and well um, in certain conversations in in theology. I actually teach on uh, a couple of his works in my theological anthropology class and talking about um, the nature of a desiring body and thinking about gender and sexuality. And I tell my students, well, we're going to talk about a fourth century bishop and you probably wouldn't have located (laughs) that conversation with him, but he's really helpful. So I do think that all of these, um, and, and Macarena being kind of the one of the points for that where um, we don't have any writing from her specifically so we, we rely on Gregory's rendition of her <laughs> but uh, he obviously cared about her and loved her so I think that we can give um, some credence and generosity to his depiction of her and so we also learn a lot about thinking about how to be a woman who is devoted to God as well so I think that there's a, a nice spread of conversations you can have about what it means to be a human in relationship with God.
0: Here's the latest coronavirus news in the world in church for the week of May 31st. On Friday, the Supreme Court ruled five to four to uphold restrictions on religious gatherings imposed by Governor Gavin Newsom during the COVID-19 pandemic. The majority opinion noted, Although California's guidelines place restrictions on places of worship, these restrictions appear consistent with the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. Similar or more severe restrictions apply to comparable secular gatherings, including lectures, concerts, movie showings, spectator sports, and theatrical performances, where large groups of people gather in close proximity for extended periods of time. In the wake of this decision, hundreds of California churches are poised to defy Newsom's requirement that churches permit no more than 100 people when they reopen. While many churches will have no problem complying with the 100 person limit, some of our clients have churches that seat 2,500 people and more. Robert Tyler, attorney advocates for faith and freedom, told NBC Los Angeles Peru has had more than 170,000 COVID cases. Many of the sick have been from its indigenous community. There, the Catholic Church has filled in many of the gaps in social services. The church has raised money for emergency medical supplies distributed food to those in need, broadcast PSAs in indigenous languages about preventative measures on church-run radio stations, and provided mental health services, reports the new humanitarian. This is a disaster, and it will be a massacre, said Miguel Fuertes, a church leader, not only because of the virus, but also because of official incompetence. The 2,700-square-mile Navajo Nation has surpassed New York's per capita COVID-19 infection rate. Among a population of 175,000, the Navajo people have registered 5,250 cases of COVID-19 and 241 deaths, reports Christianity Today this week. While states scramble to respond and reopen, Christian ministries are among those turning their attention to the unique needs of the Navajo, who have less access to basic resources like utilities, the internet, grocery stores, and hospitals, with just four inpatient facilities on the reservation. One of the community's vulnerabilities is that many folks live in multi-generational communities, said Carol Bremer Burnett, a Navajo woman and the National Director of World Renew, the International Relief and Development Agency of the Christian Reform Church. To read the rest of the story and for more coverage on how the church is responding to coronavirus, please visit the link in our show notes. Because of the global nature of this crisis, we believe it's important to hear from our sisters and brothers in Christ from around the world.
2: My name is Karen Stiller, and I'm a writer and editor in Ottawa, Canada. I'm a senior editor of Faith Today magazine and author of The Minister's Wife, a memoir of faith, doubt, friendship, loneliness, forgiveness, and more. Today I'd like to pray for all the people married to all the pastors. Dear God, it is a hard time to walk behind someone and hold them up when they need it, and to walk beside someone when neither of you are sure where you're going. It's hard to see our loves who lead your churches and pastor your people not know quite what to do in these strange days. I pray for all the people behind the people caring for your people. I pray for strength and courage and creativity, for the makers of meals from whatever is in our cupboards, for the ones who stroke the weary backs and say, now sit down for a while. I pray for encouragement for the encouragers and peace for the peacemakers. I pray for the fearful, who help to soothe the fears spoken out loud in the middle of this long night. I pray for the homes of your clergy, that they would be places of comfort and quiet when that is what is needed, and joy and loud laughter when it's time for that. I pray you would bless our pastors and preachers, our priests and our prophets, and the families who love them. Amen.
0: Prayer Amid Pandemic is produced by myself, Morgan Lee, along with Matt Linder, Mike Kosper, and Eric Petrick. Please help us spread the word about Prayer Amid Pandemic by sharing about it on social media or recommending it to your friends. The best way for you to help, though, is by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. If you have feedback, please send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com or on Twitter at Podcasts. We'll see you soon.